Welcome back to Darren Miller. We're taking a short break from the Let's Talk series to begin a series on the basic or elementary principles of Christ found in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be tackling each one of these principles one by one, starting with today's message, the elementary principle of Christ, number one, which is to repent and believe. So good to see y'all. Um, we're going to be starting this morning a... Um, you can turn me down just a tad. Uh, a short series through Hebrews, um, not the whole book of Hebrews, really just, just one primary passage at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 6. In fact, it's kind of funny, we're going to be studying this because the author of Hebrews is really trying to pass up these things and not address them. But uh, he says he wants to move on to maturity in Christ, not laying again the foundations of these basic principles of Christ. And so likewise for us, if we have any hope on moving on to maturity in Jesus, these principles are things that the scriptures claim to be foundational, foundational. And so if we don't have them as a foundation, then what, what can we build up, right? No foundation, there's no integrity. So we're going to be looking through um, this list in Hebrews 6, but before we get started, let's go ahead and pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you that we can be gathered in your name to hear your word, Lord, that you're not far from us, Father. You don't hide your face, Lord God, that you have extended your hand to us, Lord, that you loved us so much that while we were still sinners, Jesus, you died for us, Lord, when we were as unworthy as we could possibly be. Lord, you called us into your kingdom and made us heirs to your throne, to your kingdom. Father, so we just thank you for this morning. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would teach us your word. You would give us open eyes, open ears, and open hearts to receive all that you have for us this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So in Hebrews chapter 6, the first three verses read as such. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ... Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits So it's very interesting here, Um, if we were to ask, what are the elementary principles of Christ? Well, according to the author of Hebrews, it is what, like five things, I think? I forget. Let's see. Repentance from dead works and the faith towards God, that's one. The doctrine of baptisms, which is plural, interestingly enough, that's two. Laying on of hands, that would be three. Resurrection of the dead, that would be four. And of eternal judgment, That would be five. So we're going to be going through these five elementary principles so that we can, as a church, we can have a strong foundation of biblical doctrine. And so today we're going to be um, jumping around a little bit, but it's going to be very molded. It's going to be molded together pretty well, I hope. So it shouldn't be difficult. And we're going to talk about what is the basic principle of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. That's going to be our focus. So really, In a nutshell, what we're going to be talking today is just the gospel. The gospel. And I want to start with a question that I ask everyone. Y'all have probably heard me say it before. It'll get drilled in your head if it hasn't already. 
question is this. What does God need from you? What does God need from you? I ask that question a lot, and I get a lot of different answers, and it's, and it's wonderful because every answer I ever get is always wrong. What does God need from you? The answer is he needs nothing. He needs nothing from you. What can you give to God? Nothing. Everything, I heard someone say, yeah, you can give all of yourself, but at the end of the day, you can't give anything to him that's not already his. God possesses all things. He spoke, and stars were created. He spoke, and he put all creation in order. He spoke, and his will comes to pass. We are his creation. We're not somehow independent of his will. We're not independent of his power, of his purpose, of his plan. We are only that which God has allowed in this creation. So there is nothing we can give to God that is not already his. And God is completely self-sufficient within himself. He did not create, you know, the world and man and angels because he was lacking anything. He created all things just for the glory of his own name. And so before we can even talk about anything scripturally, we have to understand that God needs nothing from you. And not only does he need nothing from you, but you can add nothing to him. Nothing. It's impossible. And yet God in his own love has called us forth. Not because he desires anything from us, not because... We can add to his glory, but just because he's good, just because it was in his will to do so. And yet we have here as a basic principle of Christ, repentance from dead works and faith towards God. It's like the peanut butter and the jelly, right? It just got to go together, okay? And when we talk about repentance from dead works, what, what does that mean? Repentance from dead works. Well, what scripturally, when we talk about um, the scriptures, what do we talk about when we talk about works? Now, typically, that phrase is used in a very specific way, and it's the work of the flesh. It's the, work, the working of the law. And what we find is when you look at um, really any religious system ever, any religious system ever, there is some standard of good-ish Right? There's some standard of hope, of blessing, of reward, of become like, of don't be. And the entire frame of religion is the things that we must do to earn XYZ or the things that we must do to become XYZ. Right? If you're a Buddhist, there are pillars of the faith, and if you live this way, you'll be a good Buddhist, and you know what I mean, and you'll not be a bad person. I don't even know what their hope is. There's not, I don't think there's much hope in Buddhism. Uh, <laughs> really, anyways, not going to go there. Um, you know, nirvana, I, Pastor Mark touches on, on this all the time in the Hindu caste system. Nirvana is just, if, you, if you're good enough, then when you get resurrected, your life is going to suck a little bit less than it did last time. And if you do that enough times, and if you sometime become perfect, then finally, instead of being res resurrected into another broken life, you'll just disappear and go into nothing. And there's the hope of Hinduism. And, but all of these things are based on what we can do and perform. And so when we look at the Old Testament scriptures, when we look at Judaism, 
on the surface level, I'll say that, on the surface level, it seems to be almost the same thing. We have the law of God, okay? We've got the Ten Commandments, the Levitical laws, and and it shows you, okay, you want to see what a religious system looks like. Do you want to know what it looks like to be righteous before the true and holy God? Here it is. And it's summed up in this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the law of scriptures. If you are perfect, if you only ever worship God, if you never disobey your parents, if you never commit adultery, that means not even in your heart, if you never steal, if you don't even want to steal, if you never so much as hate your brother without a cause, if you are pure and blameless and touch nothing defiled, became, become pure and innocent all of your days without stumbling, then, then you can call yourself righteous before God. Then you have a religion that you can uphold. The pro- there's a problem to that, though. There's a problem to that. When we're faced with the works of the flesh, the works of the law, the law demands perfection. And it's somehow, even though that's spoken and spoken and spoken and spoken, it, it, I believe that, that we become numb to that idea. And the issue with a perfect law is that when you consider your own life and your own understanding of how imperfect you are, anybody want to disagree with that statement? Didn't think so. When you understand how imperfect you are, any hope of being righteous before God according to your own works or even religious workings has completely been voided. Has has completely been voided. Because the scriptures say clearly that if you break one law at one time, you have broken the whole law and you are a transgressor before God. So even if today you could somehow, and this is impossible, but even if today, going forward, you could repent and you could keep the full law you're already condemned from the laws you've broken in your past, there's no hope. Not in the law. Not according to works. And in fact, if anyone had any concept that maybe somehow we are good or righteous before God because of, well, you know, I've been a pretty good person. I've, you know done my good deeds, right? I've given some money to the guy in the street. I've bought pizza from this guy. You know, I'm a pretty decent guy. You know, we then would be confronted with the truth of Scripture, which is very prevalent. Truth of Scripture like we find in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. In Romans three ten, he's actually quoting um, somewhere, probably Isaiah. I forgot to look it up. As it is written, there is none Righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good. No, not one. And yes, when he says no one, that includes you. And that includes myself. And this is right in line in Romans 3.23, just later in the chapter. Paul writes this and says, look, We have all sinned, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, to us, we compare ourselves to other people, and we say, well, that's not too bad because I'm pretty good, and those guys are really bad, and I'm not that bad, so I'm pretty good, right? 
That makes sense. But when you understand that perfection is what is commanded, the more you look at that, the larger the gap between us and the perfect character of God becomes. Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. All of our unrighteousness are like filthy rags. Here you go, God. You know what? I, I'm going to come. I'm just going to offer. I'm going to offer everything to you. And he's like, filthy rags? Thanks, man. Appreciate that. You know what I mean? It's really what I needed today, sitting up here in the heavens, ruling over all things. Here's the thing. By the works of the law, no flesh is justified. That is the key to the gospel. That is the first and foremost thing that we have to understand if we have any hope of understanding who God is and our place in it. You know, I have people that we have to come and stay in our home rather for a night or for three months or for a year or whatever, and, and it always happens, not always, but a lot of times it happens the same way. You know, I'll be taking them around. They've got no car. They've got no money. We're buying food. We're doing this. We're driving around, and they're just, man, look, man, I just so thank you, and this, and this, this, and well, you know, and if this happens, you know, I'll do this, and I'm just like, hey, man, just hold up. Like, I appreciate that. But I just want you to understand one thing. I don't owe you anything. And I know I don't owe you anything. And I need you to know that I know I don't owe you anything. Now that might sound kind of harsh, but it's because I follow up with, so everything that's done is out of love. It's because I love you and Jesus loved you. It's not out of obligation. So you just need to, you need to understand that. And that takes the weight off of them takes the weight off of me, and it helps them to understand the gospel. God does not owe you anything. He knows that. He's just waiting for us to catch up to that reality so that then we can understand how great and vast his love poured out on us truly is. Because it's according to the goodness of his character and the infinite mercy and grace that is in the Lord, not because of anything we could earn or deserve. But because the law demands perfection and the works of the law would have to be perfect, and even the Levitical stuff, all the sacrifices and everything, it's just a kind of like, oh, God, don't look at this right now. You know, let's just cover this up. You just kind of kick it under the rug and give us another year. And God's like, all right, we'll, just, we'll give you another year, right? It doesn't actually deal with any of our sin. Numbers 15 says that if anybody sins on purpose, presumptuously, there is no sacrifice for sin. And so even if we wanted to try to justify ourselves before God, <clears throat> we're already, it's too late. But you know, there are some people in history that if anybody could make a claim, religiously speaking, that they were right with God, if anybody even tried to make that claim, there was one class of people that nobody could beat. Anybody know who that is? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. In Jesus' days, the Pharisees were, were part of the religious leadership. There's more. There's Pharisees and Sadducees and different things. But the Pharisees are the ones we're all familiar with. They were the, uh, they were the uh, religious leaders that were really of the people, right? And honestly, they were, they were Jewish heroes. We look at them in the light of, oh, the Pharisees were so bad. No, the Jews loved these guys, okay? They were the Sadducees the Jews didn't like so much. They were the, like, left-wing political guys that sat up there in the big houses. They don't want to deal with them. Okay, Pharisees were the good guys, but you got to understand, the Pharisees' entire life, every day, 
was devoted to fulfilling and teaching the law. Every single day. Anybody ever here lived a whole day just trying to keep and teach the law? Yeah, probably not. Okay? That was their entire life. And yet we have this episode in John chapter 3 where there is a Pharisee. There is a man by the name of Nicodemus, a very devout man of God. And it says in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, there was a man of the Pharisees, a lawkeeper, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's very interesting. He's admitting that to Jesus. We know you've got to be from God. There's just no other... We ain't that stupid, okay? And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Pharisee, I say to you, lawkeeper, I say to you, unless one is born again, Anathan, born from above, again a second time from the original source, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, which is a term for the Messiah, a term for Jesus, who is in heaven. Now listen to this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, or that the world through him might be saved. Jesus just laid out, hey, you want to get saved? You want to enter the kingdom? You have to be born again from the spirit. You have to look at the son of man as he's lifted up and believe. There's not a whole lot of law keeping involved <laughs> And in fact, the Israelites in the wilderness with the law and in their rebellion, God himself sent fiery serpents into their camps. And these snakes were biting the people and they were obviously in pain and they were dying. And he didn't say, okay, well, now that you're dying because you're rebellious, if you go and keep the law, you'll be healed. No, they were under this judgment because they had already rebelled. Instead, God told Moses, you make a staff with a serpent on it, and you lift it up. And if anyone so much as looks, 
If they believe my word, which I'm giving to you, and just simply looks at that staff, they will be healed. And Jesus relates that event to himself, that just as Moses lifted up the serpent and all they had to do was believe and look and gain their healing, that when Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross, all that looked to him and simply believe, not through the workings of the law, not through some sort of manifesting my own good deeds. No, it's already hopeless. All those who believe in my work, put their eyes on me, I will save. For I came not to condemn the world. Guys, the world was already condemned. But that through me, Jesus says, the world might be saved. And so this is the issue, the repentance from dead works. Do you know what repentance means? It's a Greek word, metanoia. It means the changing of one's mind. Now that's a little too simple. If you think about someone who was a maybe running around, 17, 18, being crazy, breaking into places, beating people up, selling drugs, and then suddenly, boom, they get arrested, they get caught up, they think they're all big bag chips, you know what I mean, whatever, I totally messed up that phrase. And uh, they're in the courtroom, and the judge says, bang, 40 years. Any of y'all ever seen those reaction videos on YouTube, or these dudes with tattoos on their face all like this, they just melt? and just start weeping, and it's suddenly there's a realization of like, I don't know the right words, I'm in church, let me see, dang, <laughs> what reality hits, and suddenly all these things that were cool and great and all oh, it's whatever, suddenly seem like a real bad idea, suddenly they see how senseless they were, and some people still don't care, don't get me wrong, some people would just go to prison and like, well, all right. But there are some people who in that moment, <laughs> their whole life flashes before their eyes, right? And they reconsider everything. And they realize that that was wrong. And given the opportunity, they, they get out and they live differently because their mind has been changed towards those actions. That's repentance. And even in the church, there can be, there can be a uh, temptation to think that somehow we have to or just as bad that we can earn favor from God by the way we pray or the way we read or if we go talk to enough people or if we do these things and somehow we're, we're creating for us righteousness. The scripture says no. No, 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 no. The only thing that can or will ever make any one of you righteous is faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Is by submitting your life, repenting, from the idea that somehow you have something to offer God, that somehow you're going to earn or produce something that's good in your strength, even with Christ. Okay, thanks, Jesus, I got it. Now I'm gonna go do these good works. Repent from dead. Your works in themselves without the Spirit of Christ are dead. They produce nothing. Go put a dead man on the assembly line. Prop him up. See how many things get done. Please don't do that. We're already backordered from COVID. It's going to be a bad day. But you understand that Je you need to understand that Jesus says, as he was talking to the Pharisees, even here in Matthew five twenty, Jesus says, "For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven." 
Unless your works are greater than the Pharisees' works, who that was their whole life, who even, they, they were tithing. Some of y'all don't even tithe out of your money. They were tithing out of their mint and cumin. I don't even have mint. Okay, we have mint. We got mint. We, just, we need some cumin. They were even tithing out of their mint and cumin. These dudes, as the world considered, were as righteous as it gets. And Jesus was telling them, unless you're more righteous than them, you will not enter the kingdom. Man, if Benny Hinn was a real thing, I, I could have sworn Jesus could have just said that. People would have just been falling over everywhere, I'm sure, right? On the inside, people were probably like, what? I have to be more righteous than a Pharisee? That's not something to go, okay, let's do it. That's something to fall to your knees and say, well, then there's no hope. And that's why Jesus had, came and he said, look, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one will come to the Father unless they come through me, because through your works, it is hopeless. Galatians 3, 10 through 11 says, for as many are of the works of the law, if you have any hope in yourself that you can produce righteousness by your own hands, as many are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the scripture says, the just shall live by faith. The just will live by faith. Guys, that's freedom. That is amazing freedom. Because what I see is that even though we believe in Jesus and he's our savior, if we still hold the weight of our position on like the spiritual thermometer, like I don't know where that exists anyways, um, by the, what we do or cannot do, then when things start, don't go our way, when we don't see things produced the way we wanted them to be produced, when things don't happen the way we think they should, suddenly that weight falls on us. And it gets harder and harder and harder to hold. And people run from the Lord instead of to him. Because they feel like somehow they have failed. Or they have not produced. Or they have not got it right. Because they're still trying to do it themselves. But Christ says no. That if that's the way you're going to live your life, you're under a curse. The righteous, they just live by faith. They trust that Jesus was enough. They trust that God will send them where he wants to send them, that he will bring them what they need. He trusts that God will empower them, that God will use them however God wants to use them. And they rest their hope fully in Jesus. That's why it's the repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And it's the only thing, it's the only thing that pleases the Father. In Hebrews it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, without trusting Jesus in every part of your life, it is impossible for you to please the Father. But this is the salvation by which we now live. I've got just about three more passages. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. For God who is rich in mercy, listen to this, because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Guys, by grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And this is the core of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not, I wish y'all could underline that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look, if you've been called into the kingdom, if you have faith in Christ at all, it's because the Father who is good gave it to you. In the life that you will live by faith, he has already determined. Just surrender to that. Just trust that God's will and grace for your life is enough. And if you can surrender to that, you will have peace. And the Father will lead you if you do. For Romans 4, 4 through 5 says basically the same thing. Now to him who works, the wages aren't counted as grace. They're counted as debt. It's just what you owe God anyways. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So as we, as we come to a, a close here tonight, today, this morning, wow, so you said Friday night, I guess, I don't know. Sunday, right. Look at that. My watch didn't come on. Okay, as we come to a close this morning, we can talk about dead works, we can talk about righteousness that comes only through faith of God, but there's that key word repentance. And as we close, I just want to say, I just want to talk about what does that look like what does it look like to have a heart that is truly repenting from dead works, from our own procedures, and trusting ourselves into the hand of God? And this is the last thing that I want to read. This is from Luke chapter 18. And this is Jesus giving us an answer, giving us an answer to what does this look like. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted, listen to this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. And let me tell you, if you think that there's anything in you that makes you righteous other than the blood of Jesus Christ, you will always despise others and see yourself as somehow better than someone around you. And you will always be wrong for that. Jesus says, two men went up from the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Jews hated tax collectors. They were considered traitors of their country because they worked for the Roman government. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Rather, you're here today, and this is the first time you've heard this, or rather, you're a Christian and you've been serving the Lord with all your strength. That ending statement is true. If your works, if your actions 
are to raise yourself up in some standard, even in Christ, the Lord will humble you. But if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up in due time. So let's just go before the Lord like this man. And let's just acknowledge that apart from him, we can do nothing. But that in Christ Jesus, salvation is already once and for all paid for. And then right after that, we're going to be celebrating communion. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for this morning. We thank you, Father, for your goodness that you have given us rest Jesus, that you are our Sabbath rest, that there is nothing we could do to produce anything for you. There is nothing that we could do to overcome the weight of our sin, but that you have done it all by the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilt for all those who believe. And so, Lord, right now we humble ourselves, Father God. We acknowledge that we're not worthy to even lift our eyes, but that you've opened the way, Lord God. You've invited us to do so. And, Lord, we just ask that you forgive us of our sins and have mercy on us who in ourselves are sinners. And Lord, we thank you and we receive the salvation that only you can give and have given for all who believe. So we honor you and glorify you in Jesus' mighty name, amen.